Welcome to the Development Policy Center. In this podcast, you'll hear Kyle Peters, Managing Director at the World Bank, presenting a public lecture called The Future of the World Bank. Currently, the global community faces extraordinary challenges to ensure protection for the world's poorest and most vulnerable individuals. To address these challenges, the World Bank is preparing an innovative response package, including doubling financial support to the most in-need countries. Mr. Peters will share his insights on current global development issues and how the World Bank intends to address them. We hope you enjoy this podcast. All right, well, uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Crawford School. Uh, It's great to see so many people here. Um, but I guess, uh, given the topic and the, uh, the speaker, it's not, it's not surprising there's such a lot of interest. Uh, my name is Stephen Howes, and I'm the director of the Development Policy Centre, which is a research centre within the Crawford School of Public Policy. Uh, let's begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting, and by paying our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, our speaker today is Carl Peters. Welcome, Kyle. Kyle is the World Bank's Managing Director and Chief Operating Officer and Senior Vice President for Operations, and he's a long-term uh, World Bank um, staff member uh, who has a vast amount of experience uh, to share with us and now has this uh, global uh, perspective. And, um, you know, we asked that uh, he, you know, talk on an uh, interesting topic and make sure we had a good title to make sure we got people to come, and so I think... <laughs> We've certainly got that, right? the future of the World Bank, the, the topics don't come much bigger than that. Um, and I'm sure the, uh, the presentation will meet uh, the expectations uh, that go with that, with that title. Uh, so we're looking forward to hearing from you, Carl. Welcome. It's, it's not my phone, let me just say. <laughs> uh, welcome to Canberra. I think Carl's going to speak for about 30 minutes. And that should leave uh, lots of time for uh, Q&A afterwards. So uh, please join me in welcome Carl Peters. Um, yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, uh, I always, when someone makes an introduction like that, it's a long time staffing with the World Bank, I start to feel very old, but in my case. Um, it's really nice for me to be back um, to ANU. As I, as I was telling a group of people earlier, I, I started my career in the World Bank, my operational career in the World Bank as, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, as the, um, I usually don't need a mic anyway with this kind of, but I started my career in the World Bank as, um, as a, a country economist for the Pacific Islands in the mid-1980s. And, um, and then I worked pretty extensively on East Asia. And so uh, ANU was always a place that uh, we came to really um, to, to exchange knowledge and exchange views on the Pacific Islands as well as uh, sort of broader issues. In terms of East Asia, I worked for a long time on Indonesia and there's a lot of, a lot of expertise on uh, Indonesia and ANU. So it was, it's always, to me, it's a place that um, is really um, sort of an intellectual hub of, of uh, the discussions around uh, economic development, poverty, and issues in the, in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. So I'm, I'm really I'm really happy to be here. I think the last time I was here was 1989. So you, uh, I guess things have changed a bit, but um, uh, I'm really happy to, to come back. I, I thought I'd, I'd talk to you about three things. Um, the future of the World Bank being the, the mega message, but then um, 
really, um, we talk a little bit about what, what the World Bank sees as uh, global trends in development. Um, and then about three priorities in which the World Bank is, is organizing its work as, as we go forward to the next uh, decade and a half. And then third, a little bit about how we're partnering with uh, Australia on some, some issues in the Pacific and, and, and the broader issues around the, um, our fund for the poorest uh, Ida, which we are in the process of replenishing, which is one of the issues that I've come to talk to the government about um, while we're here. So just so, I, I think you probably all know a lot about the World Bank. The World Bank's a global cooperative. It's 189 members. We have uh, two goals, which is uh, ending extreme poverty and boosting shared prosperity. Boosting shared prosperity is sometimes a little bit uh, oh, um, not that clear, but what it really means is a focus on the, on the poorest 40%, the lower four, four deciles of uh, populations and what we do to make sure that growth um, happens in the lowest four deciles of the population. So um, we, are, we are the only multilateral development bank that's, that's global. So we engaged across the entire uh, globe. We're, we're broken up into six, six um, regions. Uh, we, we're the East Asian Pacific region, the South Asia region, the Middle East and North Africa region, Africa, uh, uh, Europe, Central Asia, and Latin America. So we, we're engaged uh, uh, globally. We also have um, three, glo uh, three practice groups. The World Bank is divided in, so we have a sustainable development group, a human development group, and, uh, and an e um, economic policy and um, finance, finance and institutions group. So we we're, we're work as a global matrix across six regions and three, three practice groups. Um, just to so as part of going forward in the World Bank, we uh, with the with the changes in the international community, we've been really focused on thinking about the future of development and what we've just come to a part where the sustainable development goals have been adopted in the United Nations. The, um, also, we have um, a financing for development conference in Addis, which set the stage for how we want to finance uh, development and, and what are the key issues to move forward on that. And we just had a major climate change conference in Paris uh, in, in last uh, October about uh, how to finance the COP21, about how to finance uh, climate change, as well as the World Bank itself has been. Um, engaged pretty heavily in lending and supporting developing countries in the last um, five or six years as the world has kind of slowly come out of the global financial crisis and then has uh, moved into this new uh, sort of global slowdown. We also have issues around their financial capacity, uh, the funding we have for our lowest income countries, as well as the, the financial capacity within the IBRD. So we thought this was a good time to, to sit back and think of what are the, the major challenges in development that the world is facing as, as a way of thinking about how the World Bank should engage in the future. And I think we really identified five major global challenges that uh, the world is uh, facing. The first being um, urbanization. And I think you'll find that within uh, 20 Within 20 years, this, this exercise was basically between now and 2030 to align with the sustainable development goals. But really, that 60% of the world's population 
will live in cities by, by 2030. Um, urban slums will, will constitute about almost between one and two billion, close to two billion people will live in, will live in urban slums. So there's a major infrastructure challenge globally in development, but particularly in managing cities and sustainable cities. I was just in India a few weeks ago and um, I looked at a project that we're doing in Mumbai on the urban transport side. And the Mumbai urban transport moves 8 million people every day, and um, which is the, I think it's the largest uh, um, urban transport system in the world. And we have been working with them to sort of expand the speed of, of, of service and, and, and combine the challenges of, of transport in a crowded, uh, crowded city like that, where you have to face um, the, the sort of ability to move that many people. And when you expand the tracks or you expand the service, all the, all the, all the, the people living in, in, the, in the causeways of the railway that you need to move and things like that. It's, quite, it's going to be quite a challenge for development going forward. So this growing trend in urbanization presents us with a, a lot of challenges. There also, I know earlier some of you really focused on gender. We, we did a lot of work with it. Um, one of the things that gender strategy showed that one of the key things in terms of women's engagement and economic opportunities is really providing safe transport. So one of the things we worked with in Mumbai was to, to have uh, female cars. Even, even in the morning and the afternoon, there's all, they're all female trains just so that um, so that give women a safe space to go back and forth to work. So, that, so first is the, the challenge of urbanization. The second is really the challenge of changing di uh, demographics. And it's a twofold challenge. I mean, the first, the first challenge is really aging populations. Um, uh, a lot of um, upper middle income, uh, middle income countries, as well as the developing world, are facing uh, really aging populations and just putting a lot of pressure on health systems, social protection systems, um, child um, care systems. Um, so there's a big challenge in how you deal in development with the demographic challenge of aging. It's, it's a lot of uh, developed countries have been facing that for some time but also a lot of now developing countries like China um, and, and countries like that are facing really changing uh, aging uh, demographics. But the second challenge alongside that is uh, really in Africa, South Asia, and in, in the Middle East and North Africa, nearly a half a billion people will enter the labor force between now and, um, and 2030. So what, what is the, you know, how do you um, really deal with um, how do you deal with um, absorbing those, those kind of workers, that kind of youth into, into the labor market? And what is the, how do, how do you, you address the job challenge that's emerging from this demographic challenge? And then the third is uh, really the changing na nature of globalization. The fourth is the changing nature of uh, globalization. I think a lot, um, you know, connectivity, what's happening in manufacturing, um, how do you how do you with how do you deal with uh, the new cultural integration and the spillovers and just the whole productivity uh, sort of question? So, what's the future of manufacturing? What's the future of competitive? What's the future of trade integration? The fifth uh, issue, which is something that I think um, we really need to think about, is the the, 
the growing sense of um, populism, uh, rising sense of inequality that I think is, is widespread in many, many um, developed countries as well as in many developing countries. I mean, a, a feeling that globalization and trade have, have left large segments of the population behind. Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of dissatisfaction with uh, Christine Lagarde uh, said at the, um, at, the, at the annual meetings in October that uh, her theme was that um, the world had been growing for too, too slow for too long and it benefited too few. And uh, so how do, we, how do we think through making uh, growth more inclusive and, and making sure that we're reaching segments of the population that feel they're not benefiting from globalization and not benefiting from um, the increased um, um, globalization and trade. And last is the, really the pressure on, on resources that we see. Um, climate change is, is one. Um, I guess water scarce, growing water scarcity um, is, is another. I mean, I think water will be one of the real challenges for development in the, in the, in the next couple of decades. And the last is really the environmental sustainability of development, the brown economy. I mean, um, you know, the, are we, are, how do we deal with, with cities growing and things like this? How do we deal with the uh, environmental degradation of, um, of the developing world? So I think there are the sort of, as we, as we thought about it, um, you know, there's a kind of the six big mega challenges we see going forward, which is, um, urbanization, demographics, connectivity, globalization, populism, um, um, pressure on resources. So that those are the kind of things that we really think that we, if we're going to think about the world in the next two decades, those are the kind of challenges we, we really need to think about. At the same time, um, we have this further challenge that um, really the world is affected by really powerful economic cycles. And we're in the, uh, we, we saw coming out of the global financial um, crisis in 2008 and 2010, the world didn't fully, hasn't fully recovered from that. I think there's been a lot of loss of fiscal space as, as, as economies try to deal with, with, uh, with uh, the impact of the global financial crisis. But now we're faced with a situation where the, the global economy is slowing. I think there's a lot of um, um, not not a lot of unity on, on across the, in the G7 or in any major economies as to how to how to deal with the slowdown in, in, in growth and the slowdown in global growth. Um, so you know, the, the getting the right mix between Mac, uh, between uh, monetary policy, fiscal policy. And um, sort of structural policies or policies, uh, growth policies, and, and really, um, you know, the, the, these challenge how to to sort of get a better balance between monetary and fiscal policy. How to think through what is the appropriate policy response on the global side, as well as um, a, a real slowdown uh, uh, with the, with the slowdown in the economies that really at the end of a, of a commodity super cycle. So that a lot of countries. Are facing um, pretty sharp drops in their in their commodity price incomes and, and how how to to manage that. Um, so I think that there we sort of say so as we have these big global challenges we're we're managing through this a very difficult um, economic 
uh, climate right now, and the cycles seem to be uh, coming. And then the last thing is really the world has also been subject to a lot more disruptions in terms of the growth path. And I'll name like just three. I mean, natural disasters are increasing in frequency and intensity. Um, you, you know, if you, if you, I guess, live in this region and work on the Pacific, you'll see cyclones, uh, the frequency of cyclones and the intensity of cyclones uh, are quite uh, something that um, deserve to be managed. A lot of uh, issues around pandemics and how to how to manage health, uh, uh, how to manage health, how to keep countries prepared and regulations to react. We just, as the World Bank, were quite heavily engaged in the um, response to the Ebola crisis in, in, in West Africa, and we're, we're, we're um, we we put a lot of resources in that and, and a lot of thinking as to how to organize health systems to enable countries to be able to, to react to that. I think um, we, we, we're working on a pandemic uh, bond, a pandemic fund, where we pay in a premium for, the, for countries to, and then we, they'll be able to draw from that um, pandemic insurance fund when, when the, the crisis hit. I think uh, we could have, had we had money like that or a fund like that, we probably could have been able to prevent Ebola from going into Liberia had we been able to react fast enough. So you can see the advantage of that, but it's quite a challenge to put together this financing instrument. And last is really the increasing bit of, um, of fragility, conflict, and violence, and the regional spillovers that, that come out of that. I think the bank is doing a lot of work. Um, and one of the big thing, one of the things we're doing in terms of our support for um, in Haida is to really increase the amount of support we're doing uh, for fragile and conflict states and small states, leading to a lot of spillovers. I mean, it's really apparent now if you look at this uh, Syria crisis, the flow of refugees into Lebanon and Jordan, and then the on movement of these uh, of refugees into Europe. So um, how, how, do, how can we engage more proactively to, to deal with uh, fragility, conflict, and violence, and prevent the this sort of type of regional spillovers that we're seeing. So that was kind of the that's kind of the lay of the land, and we, what we see is the real challenges. There's some mega ch challenges to development. There's the economic cycles that we are experiencing, and and how we manage that, as well as the risk and vulnerability from the disruptions that are, that are occurring. So that that's really the context I think of, for development. For us, um, in the next um, the next twenty years, or, or what we're thinking about at the World Bank, or what, what are the challenges we need to address? I think we, we really think the the World Bank group, and it is a World Bank group because I I, I I work at the World Bank, which is IBRD and Ida, but we also have a private sector arm called the um, International Finance Corporation that invests in. Um, that um, sort of invest in companies in developing countries. And we also have a risk insurance facility called MEGA, the Multilateral Insurance Guarantee Agency. So the whole, we have a, we have a sort of, a, there are really three institutions that constitute the, the World Bank Group. And uh, we think we, in terms of looking at these challenges and then we look at, well, what is, what, what is the World Bank? What are the comparative advantages of the World Bank? I think we see ourselves as um, an institution uh, or a group that has um, both a very a depth 
of country. Um, we, so we have really deep country roots. I mean, we have uh, very deep relationships with countries. We have a large set of, uh, I don't know, maybe three or 4,000 people in the World Bank actually work in country offices. We have, and since we have a very large office in Sydney, we also have offices throughout the world. So we have very uh, a big uh, global footprint across the uh, globe in terms of, uh, of uh, country presence and local presence. And, and, and we also have a really a global ambit. I mean, so we, we work on issues of uh, global public goods. We, we work uh, globally. So we have a sort of a, a unique mix of global and local. We also have, as I said, because it's a group, we have the public and private sector. So we have deep relations with the private sector, as well as deep relations uh, with the public sector. So we have this ability across the group to bring together an engagement with the public sector and an engagement with the private sector. So you can bring in the, the World Bank, the World Bank, IBRD, and IDA to work on issues of uh, private sector development, business climate. You can bring in the IFC to. Um, to work with companies to take advantage or, or companies to um, you know, sort of uh, catalyze investments in the private sector. And then we have a risk insurance uh, facility that really helps us um, engage when we do large infrastructure projects and there's a big you know, need for some public insurance cover or things like that. So we have an ability to engage both the public and private sector. I think we also have, um, we have a pretty deep financial capacity. Um, we have ability to leverage and mobilize funds. Uh, we, were, we were talking about uh, the World Bank itself has just uh, the IBRD, we have $15 billion of paid-in capital. And um, from $15 billion of paid-in capital, we have from, from shareholders, Australia is one, but um, from that paid capital, we have moved um, over the 70 years of our existence about $600 billion. So, we have a real ability to mobilize and, and leverage uh, capital for, for development. Of course, we, we have a capital base of about 40, 42 billion, so we have internally generated resources, another 25 billion of equity. So we have a pretty strong ability to, to leverage and mobilize capital. The IFC has the same. The, um, so that's, uh, we have a big financial advantage, and it's a, an advantage of leverage and mobilization comes from being global because we have a, unlike the, the regional development banks, we have a much larger client base, right? So we have a, a larger number of borrowing countries. So we're able to, to leverage more because we, we have a less concentrated um, claims on our equity. And then we also have a pretty, um, amongst the multilateral development banks, we have a pretty pretty strong um, knowledge and analytical base. I think um, if you look at all the multilateral development banks, we probably do more in terms of knowledge and analytical work than most of the other um, most of the other development banks. So just to point out something we did um, in, in the run-up to the climate conference in, in Paris, we did a we did a report called uh, Shockwaves, which showed the what, what would be the impact on the poor in the world of, um, of uh, climate change. And so we should have that thought of climate change is not, if we don't try to turn around the impacts of climate change, we may force another 100 million people into poverty. So that's the, so we sort of thought about what's the big picture of the development challenges. 
what is the comparative advantage of the World Bank, and then what are we going to do? And I think what we're going to do, we really focused our, um, our next two decades in, in focusing on three things, three ways to get there. And one is um, really accelerating inclusive and sustainable growth. The second is um, investing in human capital. And the third is really how can we build more resilience to shocks and, and threats. I, I think just to start out on the inclusive and sustainable growth, um, I think we're really working um, in three areas. One first area is um, on um, public finances. So um, domestic resource mobilization, uh, looking at illicit financial flows, focusing on countries where uh, tax revenues to GDP are less than 15% because those are the type of economies where we really need to focus on domestic resource mobilization. A lot of concerns about illicit financial flows, tax base shifting, and, and things like So what can we do on the domestic resource mobilization side? The second thing is really to focus on the climate for private sector development. Uh, we have something called the Doing Business Indicators, but what can we do to improve the climate for the private sector? And then the last thing is really to en engage aggressively in sort of climate-smart infrastructure. Now, um, the infrastructure challenge is, uh, is going to be quite large for the developing world. There's something like 1.2 billion people in the world without electricity. 660 people lack access to safe drinking. 660 million people lack access to um, um, safe uh, clean water. More than 3 billion people have access to the internet, but that means 4 billion people don't have access to the internet. So that's um, so. What can we do to mobilize and leverage private finance for infrastructure? We're working with the regional development banks. We're working with the Asian infrastructure development bank. But we really need to work also on how we, we can leverage private sector finance more effectively. Because um, no matter how much I can expand my balance sheet, I'm not going to really be able to deal with the. Um, with the um, $1.5 trillion worth of investment that's uh, in infrastructure that's needed every year. Then the second thing on the, on the human development side is really, one of the things we're thinking about very deeply is on the human development side is, what will the world demand going forward? I mean, we have a paradigm of development which is about people um, uh, transversing the, the layers of of manufacturing developments, so starting at very low levels of manufacturing garment manufacturing and things like that, and then progressing through value added to growth. But it, is, is that really what's going to happen in the world? I, I don't know. I mean, so the question is, um, given tech, technological change, are there going to be robots making t-shirts rather than uh, low-income developing countries? And then some of the some of what we looked at that automation um, could threaten, you know, 69% of the jobs in India, as high as 85% of the jobs in Ethiopia. So what is the what is the human development type of activities that we need to foster to make sure that people are connected to a, to a to a world in which technology is is leapfrogging ahead? What 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 kind of skills? What, what type of quality of education the countries need, because maybe the old paradigm of climbing the ladder of, uh, 
of manufacturing value added is not is not going to be the path for development. So we really need to think a little bit about the future and how to invest in skills for the future. And then the last thing I think is the whole um, the whole issue around um, the resilience to shocks and making sure that we 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 we, we are developing catastrophic instruments, risk instruments, and things that really help countries uh, deal with disruptions, unexpected disruptions, which is a bit different from traditional development finance, but do we have the right risk management instruments? We, we've been working with catastrophic uh, budget support operations, which is where we have, a, we, we have a program for resilience that countries develop, and then we provide budget support for them. Uh, and then when the, when the if a disaster occurs or a natural disaster occurs, then they can immediately draw upon the money. We're working on an insurance and an insurance scheme must be stop. We're working on an insurance scheme and um, uh, we have worked on one in catastrophic risk insurance, so for uh, in the Pacific. So those are the kind of things that we're we're thinking about in the World Bank. I'm actually here to talk to the government about the, uh, we're replenishing IDA, which is our fund for the poorest countries, IDA 18. We, we've uh, put together an innovative financial package. We have a we have special themes on, on gender, climate change, fragility, jobs and economic transformation, and governance and institutions. So I'm here to talk about the government, about the Australian government, about funding that. That's the direction of travel that we have for the World Bank. Um, I think that um, the, the future of the World Bank is um, is good, and um, we, you know, I, I, when I look at, you know, you guys are really engaged in the Pacific, and when I think about the Pacific, I have just one story that um, in 1987, um, Kyle Peters, a forlorn country economist, was sent to um, Vanuatu because there had been a cyclone pan in 1987 that had, that, uh, Uma. In, in, in 1987, a cyclone called Uma that had wiped out 31% of the uh, GDP had resulted in 45 uh, deaths and had really devastated the economy. And I was sent four months after the uh, cyclone to go to a conference and where the World Bank was asked to provide, and we worked with uh, the Asian Development Bank at the presidency there to try to provide a $1 million loan in support of the um, in support of the reconstruction in Vanuatu because of Cyclone Numa. So then if you look at the World Bank, then think in 2015, um, 2015 Cyclone Pam hit Vanuatu, had a much less, it was a much more severe cyclone, but it had a much lower death toll because the World Bank had been working with the Vanuatu government on an emergency measure system, uh, emergency warning system. There was no warning system in 87. People had to listen to the radio. But we had worked with the government of Vanuatu for three years to develop SMS uh, warning signals. So we sent out 160,000 warning signals. And so the death toll, even though the cyclone was much, uh, much more intense, was much worse. We also had a team on the ground in five, and, and two, within, we had five people on the ground in 10 days to um, really begin to needs assessment. We were able to provide them with almost immediately a, a $50 million from our crisis uh, response window. And we also have an insurance scheme that I talked about in place in the Pacific in which within two weeks, they were able to draw a premium that wasn't large enough. It was about $2 million. 
So that's the change in the World Bank engagement in the Pacific from sending some full-on guy like myself here at the age of, uh, you know, very young age to the government. <laughs> I don't want to tell you how old I am. Versus um, now the World Bank is geared up in the Pacific, has really um, upped its game in terms of disaster risk uh, uh, mitigation and instruments to deal with these type of things. So we're people in the ground in two weeks. We dispersed $50 million. We had the insurance scheme. And we really helped prevent the loss of a lot of lives through what we've done to the uh, emergency warning system that we have been fortunately working with the Vanuatu government for for three years. So thank you very much for your patience and listening to me. And I'm really happy if anyone has any questions or reactions or things. So. Thanks, Carl. So there's lots of questions. Here's the first one. <clears throat> Just introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Alex Hill from CSRO up the hill. Yes. Uh, I don't know what CSRO is, but I. Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, okay. Government okay. Science Agency. Mm -hmm. uh, we're getting more and more approaches from governments and agencies, including colleagues of yours, and how uh, groups like us that work with satellite remote sensing data can supplement. Mm -hmm. um, the monitoring of a number of sustainable development goals. Yeah. These are being asked to monitor now for the next few years. How much are you starting to tag your, your loans or programs now with that performance uh, metric? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think that we're doing two things. One, about two or three years ago, we, we geospatially, uh, we started and we geospatially tagged all of our projects now. So um, that's that's been a big um, a big thing. So we we even can produce maps and things and and where where what the actual locations of the projects are. But where this is um, actually something that we're looking at very intensely with this is how can this help us supervise our projects? Because as we as I and, you know as I look as the person who um, is running the operations, I have and, and a big thing for us is to engage more in fragile and conflict states. In other words, I have a, we have a huge program in Iraq, a huge program in Afghanistan. And we have programs, a lot of programs in West Africa where um, we were dealing in developmentally challenged areas and now we're dealing in security. It, as development challenge as well as security challenge. So, yeah. so the question is how can we use some of this, uh, this, this um, drones and some of this geospatial type activities to really monitor our projects is something that we really need to, to go into. We have a geospatial group in the bank now that's looking at this. So we really, that, that's the next step for us because it help, it'll help us monitor our projects and it'll help us um, also engage where, you know, one of the problems of the World Bank is I engage in these less secure areas. I, I don't have an army. I mean, the Australian government has an army. So if you, you know, if, if, if each development workers can protect with an Australian army, I don't. I don't have an army, so as I engage more in these areas, I need, you know, I need to think of creative ways, and this, this sort of really, I think, uh, science is really showing us the way. In fact, we did something in, in Iraq when we about five or six years ago when we we had built a bunch of primary schools and we used drones to really uh, take photographs of where they were supposed to be, and we found a few that we did. But we have a few that weren't yet built, but we thought had them built, and put it that way. So I think <laughs> this type of uh, technology is, is something that we need to increasingly use. So we'd be great to partner with you on that. Yeah. 
Yes, go ahead. Yeah, so, you, 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 my John as I used to work for the Australian Treasury. Mm -hmm. The influence which the United States and the G7 have on the World Bank Group, mm -hmm. both directly and through their uh, brand of wisdom in economics, do you think this limits at all the acceptance in developing countries of the World Bank's policy advice? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I think that, um, you know, we're going through, uh, right now we're going through a, a, a voice discussion and I think it's been an objective of ours to really increase the voice of developing countries, uh, um, increase the um, voice of developing countries in the World Bank and I, I think we, we would like to get that to be, to be 50%. But I, I think, um, you know, I think we've learned a lot at the World Bank about um, about um, structural adjustment and the way to work with countries on on the policy front. And um, I, I, so we sort of modified our our development policy lending approach about a decade ago. So now we've focused a lot on um, you know working with countries on the more bespoke way of uh, policy reform and, and, and ensuring that there's ownership on the side of countries for, before we um, move forward and that we're not imposing reforms, but we're working with countries to, to develop reforms. And I, I actually think that that's the, the, the way forward. And I, I think we've been, really, we've been really good at that. I think we've been uh, very good at that in some countries and we're, we're improving in that. So I think we are, I think we are, we, we learned, um, some lessons from the from the structural adjustment episodes of the 90s. Um, I think well, many of the things we advocated were the right approach, but we we but we had to build ownership around policies for those policies to be implemented and those policies to be ultimately successful. And I think that's the the journey we've been on. And I think there's been a lot of improvement in the in the way we're uh, doing these types of. Uh, uh, reform discussions with governments now. I'm curious to know how what is the process by which the World Bank decides on the topic of next year's or following year's World Bank Okay, this year's on uh, governance. As you know, we're just finishing one on uh, governance and institutions, I think. Um, the, I think the next one, uh, I, I assume it's announced, the next one we're working on is on education. I think because we, we really think, um, you know, as I, I was talking about, you know, human development, what's the type of education system we need for what we see as, as the growing challenges. But I, I think we really have a kind of a corporate conversation with uh, the research department, of course, is in charge of the... Um, determining the topic for the WBO, we have a new chief economist, Paul Romer, who just joined us in the last couple months. And um, I, it's just a sort of an internal discussion as to what uh, we think of the topics that need to be explored. I think we haven't done any work on education in a long time. That's why we came upon education. We've done some really interesting ones in the past. We just did one on the, before governance, I think we did one on the internet. So, uh, 
and then before that, we did something really interesting on behavioral economics, which was... Uh, well, that was one that got me curious. Yeah. Because I was involved in the one on jobs, and I could understand yeah. why that topic. Mm -hmm. So, the people actually producing it didn't seem to know what the topic had been chosen until right at the end, when something was born on. Well, you may know it better than me, but I... Uh, <laughs> So I think it's just a conversation with the chief economist and the senior management teams, what's the topic that we think is appropriate to take on. Um, so education is the next one. I don't know what will be the next one, but I'm sure Paul Romo will have a big uh, a view on that. Yeah, Murray. Um, thanks for a great talk. Okay. Um, it just triggered in my mind that when you mentioned resource mobilization and uh, tax, they Suddenly, everyone is aware of transition issues, uh, particularly on the health budget side in this region, with the uh, you know, movement to more upper middle-income countries. You have uh, the grant givers, you know, uh, EPFAR in Africa, of course, with Garvey and the Global Bank heading for the exit almost simultaneously, plus the banks, of course. Uh, in terms of grants, there's a phase out going on, uh, and the banks, of course, tending to move, I assume, still, um, loans to a higher interest rate regime. So I'm just curious as to whether there's sort of any overarching discussion going on between the ADB and yourself, uh, some of the funders, as to uh, the financing gaps that are coming for the country's concerned. Uh, and suddenly a country, for instance, has to finance all its own vaccine costs, its mm -hmm. own antiretrovirals, malaria, whatever, TB drugs. Yeah, well, um, I mean, that, that would be, I guess, I mean, that, that's always been, I think, um, this, this now, um, there were a lot of vertical, I mean, we, we always saw ourselves as the institution that focused on health systems, right? Because there was all this grant money coming in, and what, I think what you're talking about were vertical funds, right? We're coming vertically into the health system. So what, what we were, what we in the World Bank has, through our health uh, strategy have had focused on is we need to be the, the institution that helps build the systems under which these vertical programs uh, can be delivered. But um, I, I think we, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't work every day in the health sector, but so, um, but I, I think we sort of looking, we're very much um, focused now on universal health systems and, and universal health coverage and something is a big part of our program in Africa. So we'll, we'll as we do this, we'll, we will do sort of expenditure reviews uh, into what, what, what the gaps are in the funding in the health sector. We are not adverse to providing support to um, drug type uh, vertical programs if we, if we see a gap, but I think we are ready to be focusing that our competitive advantage is help build health systems. Uh, but I, maybe I don't. I don't know. I thought the global fund just got a very large replenishment. So I don't. I don't know um, what the system is completely in terms of those uh, pit, pit for, pit for which is the U.S. government uh, AIDS program. Right? I mean, yeah. yeah. I don't know if they're pulling out. I don't know. But I think we we would handle that through working on the systems and doing expenditure reviews and seeing where the gaps and the and the programs are, and then helping the countries mobilize funding for that. I wanted to ask about uh, the work that works internationally and across cultures. How does it work specifically with cultures uh, in terms of education, in terms of gender strategy? 
So how do you uh, specifically tailor gender strategies, education programs, etc., to different cultures that might have uh, disagreements or differences in terms of, sort of Western type cultures regarding gender and education? Yeah, well, I mean, we... Come in the middle. Come in the middle. Okay. Okay, sorry. I was supposed to engage with the audience. So I was, I, I've been seeing all these debates in the town hall style debates, and I see you can engage with the audience. So I was trying to engage with the audience. Maybe it's just what was going on. Okay. So, anyway, um, we, we work very much on a country based model. So, the, the way we engage is really at the country level. So, we will we will um, devise, uh, the, the way we would engage with Country X is we, we would um, do diagnostic work around the issues in Country X, the, the issues there, and then try to figure out what the entry points are to, to move the agenda forward. So if you take uh, gender, for instance, um, what, what we'll do is we have a new gender strategy which really focuses on for completing first generation uh, gender issues, which is which mean you know sort of making sure maternal health, making sure um, on education um, enrollments and everything are equalized. Uh, so there's really the MDG agenda and, 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 and gender, and then we have working on economic empowerment and voice and agency. So what we'll do is in, in countries where we find a difficult discussion around a certain issue, we'll. We'll work, we'll, we'll do analytical work, we'll work with um, groups within the country to try to build consensus for reforms, and we'll, we'll do that across most of, most of the areas in which um, we, we have, um, where the issues are difficult. We have a lot of things within our projects to be very sensitive on in terms of cultural, um, cultural heritage around uh, indigenous people, so we have a lot of we have a lot of uh, 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 sort of policies of that way we have to uh, develop plans for particular groups within countries when we're engaging in education, engaging in infrastructure, agriculture around those, those groups. Question in the back. Question in the back. I have two specific questions.
it's like so we we engage we don't um, um, we don't lend to developed countries as you're saying and so um, but we we do do a lot of knowledge work and a lot of intellectual work around migration and, and how to how to sort of um, prepare institutions what are the factors behind it what, what needs to be done in, in uh, countries of origin to 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 um, to sort of ensure that people will grow and develop and stay there, as well as looking at the, the policy um, framework across developed countries and how they can accommodate it. But I, I think there we be engaged in, in an intellectual agenda, just like what we do on climate change and what we've done in, in a number of other areas that are, that are relevant um, to developing countries. Okay, go. Um, Beyond Dressing oh, Profit School, yeah, just a bit of a, a cheeky question. I mean, okay. listening to you, I mean, it seems the future of the World Bank looks bright. I mean, you have fantastic people, you have lots of money, and you have an endless list of problems to solve. But um, when you listen to staff surveys, I mean, you yeah. talk to people who work at the World Bank, mm -hmm. there's a bit of a low morale going on for a couple of years now after internal reforms and so on. So I guess if you could tell us a little bit about how you feel the bank is doing internally, I mean, particularly if you want to win the battle, how do you do it with troops who are quite unhappy these days? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, you, you, when you ask me, are, are people unhappy? Um, I, I think that I, I've been, one of the things that I was kind of, um, I, I've been really um, managing over the last few years is really to, to this, this whole issue around the organizational effectiveness and efficiency of the bank. And, and I, I've been telling the story that it, um, you said people are unhappy. Maybe that, that's, um, we, we, we had a, a period of adjustment to a very large uh, reorganization, uh, a realignment. I, I think we, we moved in the right way given the global issues that we're facing. What we did is we basically, we did two things I think are really important. We brought together the global bank and the, and the country bank. So instead of having networks and regions, we, we brought together the, 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 the global bank, and you were, part, you were part of the PRIM, which is part of the PRIM anchors, the, the global bank. We brought that together with the, um, with the, the operational work in PRIM, right? so it's one entity. And the second thing is we, we allowed our staff to, to work globally, so we de-regionalized our sector staff. Now, during the process of that, we um, we reorganized about seven thousand people, and we um, we you know have, we have a portfolio outstanding of sixteen hundred projects. Each year, we're processing about four to five hundred projects. So there was a lot of a lot of um, a lot of changes that that people was a fairly large uh, realignment. Um, we we've sort of now sort of consolidated, and we're moving forward. But what? My, my point is that when you look at people that are really happy to work in the World Bank, I mean, when I, if you look at the survey, um, and this is something I've been struggling with, is 86% of the people or something think the World Bank's a great place to work. You know, two-thirds of the people think the World Bank's the best institute, uh, best, best agency on development in the world. Um, two-thirds think that they're, they're proud to work at the, you know, they're, 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 they're um, Exhilarated by the mission of the World Bank, or working, 
And then, you know, they really um, just like the way we work, you know, they make real big decisions. So I, I've been I've been really trying to um, um, try to, to look at some sort of agile and lean things to really to make people feel more empowered about the about the way they work. I think the the realignment is part of it. I don't think we also went through expenditure review because we really needed to 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 um, make the, their operating model a little more financially uh, viable. So the combination of the, um, I think of the realignment and the um, and the expenditure review, I think put a lot of pressure on staff. But I think now um, we're really focusing on, um, you know, the, the, the way people work and try to make them feel more empowered in the way they work. And I, I think we're making progress. I, I, as I said, um, we made a lot of progress in this staff survey. Um, but we didn't make it. It wasn't. It wasn't really good enough. So I think we need to continue to to reform internally and make people feel more empowered about their way they work as a global organization. Many people in the in the World Bank um, are there, and they they are citizens of other countries, as you know. So it, as uh, as you start to uh, do efficiency things and things, it adds a lot of anxiety. And I think. We're coming out of that now as we start to grow. So I, I'm hoping the environment will improve. And I, I go there every day to try to make this a better place for people to work. Because most people think it's a, it's one of the most, um, you know, to, to work at the World Bank and, and to do what we do and to go into developing countries and actually be able to change the lives of people is something that's uh, quite empowering and quite enriching. And I just need to change the internal culture a little bit so that we can have that 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 feeling about the way we work internally. So that's the journey we're on. Good luck with that, Bart. <laughs> <laughs> I can take the last question. Okay. Do um, you know, one of the oldest debates about the future of the World Bank is that balance the knowledge bank and the yeah. lending bank. So, from what I can hear you say, you know, so the bank's going to do both. Yeah. I want to ask you specifically, in the future, what do you see happening to uh, World Bank lending volumes, mm. both IBRD and IDA? That's a specific question. Then more generally, how do you see that balance playing out between the knowledge and the lending role? Yeah. You can see that Stephen comes from the knowledge part of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do I. Uh, I so know. do I, actually. So do I. So, um, I don't ask that question with any particular. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think... Um, As I said, I think the one of the real comparative advantages of the bank is its um, analytical capacity, and the and the and the and it's it's the way it, it can um, marshal knowledge in, in support not only of doing just e purely economic or, or sectoral work of producing a report, but also the way we bring that knowledge into our, our operations. You know, the fact that we. Um, you know, we can. We in in Brazil had a transport project where we addressed, um, you know, gender, um, it, making safe transport in Brazil, and we moved that to our projects in Morocco to really, to 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 support uh, in Morocco. But when I um, I think I've looked at this pretty closely, and when I look at the way we're allocating our administrative budget, it's pretty evenly dis divided between what we spend on knowledge, what we spend on lending preparation, and what we spend on supervision. 
And then when you look at uh, a lot of the, we, we operate with a lot of trust funds, as you, as I'm sure you're aware, and and those uh, those trust funds predominant, a lot of them go towards knowledge. So I think um, we, I'm pretty confident that as we grow our, our lending volumes, we can sustain our our, our knowledge work. And um, I, I think when people think about the World Bank versus many other de multilateral development banks. They think of the World Bank as an institution that's bringing, you know, that, that produces a lot of knowledge. And I think that's true in the, in the countries. And I think that's true uh, globally. And our authorizing environment funds are very important. The, the, the work on migration, the work we did on, on climate change for the, for the climate conference, as it, we told you, we're working, you, you know, you're working with us on the Pacific Possible, this report about development prospects in, in, in the Pacific Islands. We just did a really nice study on Vietnam called Vietnam 2035 that looked at the development agenda in, um, in Vietnam. We, we do a similar thing, and we've been doing a series of these studies in China on China 2030 on the health sector, and now we're doing one on... Um, uh, sources of growth in China. So I think that we, we do, we still, um, we, we're still providing a, a lot of uh, knowledge and we're still uh, heavily invested in knowledge. So I'm not one of those people that feels that um, the, the knowledge has suffered as much. I think there's some areas where we could do it a little more efficiently. I think we may be doing too much. And I think if we concentrated in certain, certain areas, we, we could uh, produce a, a, better, a better product. Um, but it's true. Yeah. I hear you saying many volumes are going to go up. But yeah. But China must have pretty much graduated. I mean, the BRICS can't be borrowing that much. Who is going to borrow from the World Bank in the future to push up lending volumes? You, you act like I'm pushing up lending volumes. No, 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 I'm hearing you saying lending is going to increase in the future. I'm just asking for the clients. Well, yeah, I think that, um, first of all, you know, on Ida, the Ida countries that um, we'll, we'll probably, um, you know, we're looking at an Ida replenishment, hopefully that'll increase by 50%. So it's 50, going from a roughly $50 billion replenishment to a $75 billion replenishment. Um, and there we're focusing on doubling the re resources provided to fragile states. Um, we're increasing our resources, as I've been telling everyone here, from about $350 million to the Pacific to about $900 million under Ida-18. So I think there's a, there's a real increase in, um, on the low-income countries, and I think there's a scarcity of, uh, of capital and a need for investment. On the middle-income countries, I think if you look at the lower-middle-income countries, there's a, you know, we have Vietnam graduating, we have India graduating from Ida, we have a large, um, a lot of in the Middle East, we're doing a lot of work on, on reforms. So I think there's a, you know, as we, as we lend more um, upper middle income countries on global public goods, like um, climate change type activities, and when the global economy slows or like the financial crisis, but there's a real bulk of lower middle income countries that are still uh, quite eager, not only for finance, but the, the knowledge that comes with their finance. So I think there is a, 
uh, a growing demand for funds. And when you look at um, the percentage that we provide of overall funds into uh, developing countries, it, it's really it's really minuscule. So, there, and you look at the challenge of infrastructure; it's quite large. My my team is saying I need to stop yeah, there because I have to go something else. So, I, um, just let me let, yeah, let me conclude by saying thank you very much for. Um, taking the time to listen to me, and I appreciate very much um, the interaction. As I say, this is a this is an institution that I've really long respected, and, and know that it's a it's a it's a place of knowledge on the on the Pacific and Southeast Asia and East Asia in, in general, and I'm sure more broadly than that. But thank you very much for taking the time. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Center. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.